0: Hello, and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. Today, we're going to explore a topic that isn't much fun to talk about, namely, reasons why the pandemic is making it harder than ever for students to stay in school and succeed. But we're also going to highlight the incredible opportunity university leaders have in front of them to make the changes required to keep more students engaged in school and on track to earn their degree. Thank you for listening and enjoy.
1: Hello, and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. My name is Misi Fairfax, and with me today is the person who directs research into the best ways to improve student retention and graduation rates, my friend and my colleague, Ed Bennett. Hey, Ed.
0: Hey, Misi. It's great to be with you today, and thank you for the lovely introduction. I appreciate that.
1: Oh, absolutely. And well, Ed, you know, we talk every day, and I know we have a lot to talk about today to share with our listeners, and a limited amount of time to cover it. So I'm just going to dive right in for us. Um, As we all know, for most of the past two years, you've been focusing your research and your discussions with university leaders around how to keep students enrolled, engaged, and moving forward in their quest to earn a degree in the midst of the global pandemic and everything else has come along with it. So could you give us, just to start off, a quick summary of how those conversations and your thinking possibly has evolved since May or March 2020, and set the stage for what we really want to talk about today, which is the current state of affairs and your thoughts on where we go from here.
0: Sure, Macy. Um, so obviously there's been a lot of change over the course of almost two years now, if you think about uh, that, this really started for us in March 2020, so we're, we're rolling up on the two-year anniversary, as, uh, as awful as that sounds, pretty soon, and those two years have been a period of tremendous change. Uh, and that's not surprising anybody. You can look at any of uh, anything that you do inside higher education, really anything in society, and it's all been subject to uh, some pretty massive uh, Um, And in that time, we've evolved considerably. One of the things that, as you know, we've been very interested in is trying to understand maybe some of the good things that have come from the pandemic. In other words, innovations that have, uh, uh, you know, slingshotted us forward in ways that maybe we weren't Uh, Moving us forward quickly before. I'll give you one example, and that's the use of virtual tools. And uh, of course, you know, we talk a lot about virtual classrooms and how that was uh, both a a difficult but maybe a high payoff experience for a lot of faculty members moving their classes online. I know I have friends that teach at colleges, and um, they really like a lot of the uh, advantages that a virtual classroom brings, and they're trying to figure out how to keep some of those things uh, in their classes going forward, be they in person or or virtual. Uh, so we now have a, a professorate that has a whole new skill set to teach that they had, did not have before and frankly that we were probably going to need them to have going forward. Another good example is the use of those tools for virtual advising and student support. Uh, we didn't realize before the pandemic how many students we were missing with a physical location. Uh, simply mm-hmm. having a nine-to-five office that a student has to go to and sit down and have a 30-minute appointment Seems great, I mean, that's how we do things in this world, but a lot of students were just simply missing that. Didn't have time for it, felt intimidated by it. Maybe they weren't on campus very often. Um, And now as a result, being able to engage with support this way, we hear from advisors again and again, that they're seeing students they've literally never seen before, who have never had a chance to sit down and talk with them. And they're talking with them in really interesting, creative, and very supportive ways. I'm so excited about the opportunity that these sort of uh, advances have for supporting students really indefinitely, you know, for the next foreseeable future, for the very near of, of our careers.
1: Yeah. And it sounds like from everything that you said too, as well, that it, it served not only faculty and staff, but students as well in terms yeah. of the, some of
0: these changes that took place. Right. And we don't have great numbers on things like retention rates and such, because this is also new. And on top of that, there's so much change going on, but just based off of the qualitative feedback, students love this stuff. They really appreciate the. Um, Flexibility, they appreciate the access. Surprising uh, group that also appreciates it is oftentimes the frontline staff. Uh, (laughs) Virtual environments allow for more flexible working hours. And if you are a parent with a child that, you know, say you're taking care of during the day and you wanna work evening hours, well, we can do that now. We can do that on the the weekend. And guess what? That's when students are available too. Mm So in the midst of all this though, we started to notice a trend. And I've talked to a lot of college presidents and provosts and other senior leaders across the course of the last few years. And the conversations has been on a variety of different subjects, all related to student success in some way. And the pandemic's obviously a part of those conversations. Um, but one common thread across those conversations has been where people's mindset or sort of frame of reference is. Everybody's very focused on the now. Um, and that's understandable. We have a lot of change, very sudden, we're making a lot of decisions for the very first time, never had these challenges before, there's no playbook. But the focus has been on the immediate. What are we doing this semester? How are we reopening our campuses, keeping students safe? How do we deal with different things mandate wise and such? Um, how are we just going to essentially come back to life? And it's all very focused on the near term. And it really got me thinking a lot about, well, what about the medium and longer term effects of the pandemic? You know, What will happen in the future? Um, is this ever going to be, quote unquote, over for for us in some way? Uh, Or are these changes going to be permanent features that we have to um, deal with across the course of time? And I'm not talking about the good things like virtual advice, and I'm talking about some of the more negative effects. We know the pandemic has a disproportionate effect uh, across our population. There's a lot of indication that it's increasing inequities, Mm -hmm. and that's happening in education as well. Um, But what are some of the specific things that are happening on campuses right now, or maybe will be soon happening to campuses? that we uh, just aren't thinking that much about. Maybe some people are thinking about it, but we're not thinking about it as a large community. So really it really was interesting exploring some of those ideas. Well,
1: it makes me think of, right, we may find that many of our leaders are still in a reactive mode and that very few are, are to your point, right, to summarize what you just shared, are looking far to think about the advances that they need to make um as they think about the fall term and and just essentially other terms and so you talked about a couple of things and and one of the things i was hoping that we could talk about a little bit further and you were alluding to it i i think and just as i kind of uh cut in here was about student disengagement and i was wondering if we could talk a little bit more about that
0: yeah obviously a salient future before we get into that i just want to say a little bit about where all this came from uh so before, um, we have four different things we're gonna talk about here. Uh, student disengagement just being the first of the four. And uh, as I started thinking a little bit about the medium and, and uh, uh, longer term future, so across the course of the next few years and decade, mm-hmm. uh, I did a sort of survey of the firm, if you will. I don't know if all, all the viewers, listeners, I suppose, this podcast can't really see much, can you? For sure, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the. Uh, uh, Maybe that's next year. We'll do a, We'll do start doing vlogs. Uh, um, uh, listeners may not know that EAB does work in a lot of different areas. We have a team that works on K-12. We have a team that works on mental health. We have a key team that's part of a larger student affairs team. Uh, we've got folks that are working on technologies. We have folks that are working in the two-year space, the four-year space, all over the place. Folks mm-hmm. in enrollment and success and just general operations. So there's a lot of interesting things going on around the firm, but everybody's, you know, of focused on their own areas i wanted to go around and ask the research leads from each of those groups what are you thinking about for the medium and and long term what are you hearing what are you worried about what kind of data are you seeing and ask those folks to essentially send me what they got and talk to me about the future and from those conversations these four ripples emerge these are things that have been popping up in their research or in the literature they're reading or in their conversations that they felt were things that they wanted college leaders to know about so they could be in a plan for not just 2022, but uh, those futures. Now, the first ripple, as you already mentioned, is uh, student disengagement.
1: Yeah, I'm excited uh, to get into it. So that was yeah. uh, that was a bit of the excitement there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's on everybody's yeah. mind. Right. We've got right. Uh, campuses. And I should say this is probably more about social disengagement. Right. Not the That's right. the word engagement is a broad one in the student success community. But here we're specifically talking about the interactions of students with other people on campus. And this is a huge missing part of the college experience. Uh, there's no way around it. You know, we can move classrooms online, you know, some good, some bad, but that, but you really can't move the social life online that well. Uh, it's just not one of those things. And if you happen to be a residential campus where this is a huge part of your value proposition, kind of why you can charge a premium, that's a, that's a difficult moment right there. Um, so we lost the campus. We also have students that are in a bunker mentality mindset, like we maybe especially uh, early on the panic, but some of us still have a little bit of that mindset of you know let's, let's hunker down and wait this thing out. And so we wanted to look at the data and see how this was affecting us because if students are truly socially disengaged, is that gonna snap right back or is that something that schools are gonna have to work on drawing students back in and kind of out of their rooms, into the community um, and connecting them with each other, uh, maybe doing a lot more there than ever before. And we have some numbers here I'd like to share with you. So- sure. Please um, so the um, uh, there's been some great survey work done here by Inside Higher Ed and uh, their survey our sorry, survey partner, I should say, called College Pulse, and uh, they have been working with students, surveying them pretty regularly uh, across the course of the pandemic. A spring 21 survey asked students what they missed the most about campus, about campus life, and uh, students were you know allowed to pick multiple. I think there were nine options; they were allowed to pick three of them. Uh, but 73% of students, so three-quarters of students, the top response by far was they missed friends and social life. Um, Interesting enough, the, the second choice, which I think was like 44%, was the in-person classrooms. The, the next choice after that was clubs and activities, so another social activity that they were missing. Clearly, it was a hole in their life. But we had, had the hope that with schools largely returning to some sort of in-person experience in fall 21, that that might just sort of snap back. I mean, we are resilient people. Like to socialize, wouldn't you expect that? You know, the, the world would get better all of a sudden, <laughs> and we would be able to kind of, like, with a bigger relief, kind of emerge and then begin socializing again. And unfortunately, that's not what the numbers are showing. Um, that same um, polling group went and asked students in um, November, this November, pre Omicron. I want to be clear, uh, okay. so before all those fears, how much were they socializing relative to the past? And about a quarter, 28%, said they were socializing more than ever before, which is, I think, maybe a response we would expect from a lot of first-year students, especially those sort of leaving the home for the first time on their own. You know, that's their right. Adults. I know that I certainly socialized more than ever before <laughs> in my first year of college, but I imagine that's a common experience for many people. Well, that's the good news. The bad news is the combined 52% said either that they were socializing less than ever before or more than in the spring, but still less than before the pandemic. So on the balance, a large number of students were still in some way, shape or form, not back to quote unquote, where they've been uh, when it comes to socializing with each other. So even though we've put the environment back in place, not perfectly, certainly there's some restrictions in there. students' mentalities have not fully recovered yet. And so schools might need to do more here to uh, prime the pump, if you will, on the social experience at college, and kind of get this thing restarted a little bit. Um, we wouldn't shouldn't just expect that it's going to kind of naturally happen on its own, getting back to where before. And I'll just want to say one more thing before I get into what we might be able to do about it, and that's that we weren't terribly good at this to begin with. Uh, about a quarter of students, first-year students in Stad, uh, before the pandemic, just before, I think it was in 2019, were surveyed and said that they did not feel like they were part of a community on their campus. So that's one in four of your students who were already saying, this wasn't really a place that I felt terribly socially engaged. Um, so they weren't getting that value. And the trouble there is that those students were about four times as likely to drop out and not return for the second year on that campus. And we don't know, maybe they went somewhere else. But... Uh, the numbers clearly indicate that if you don't feel like you're part of a community, uh, that you're less likely to stick around. And indeed, this is the most foundational work on student success that's been done, that's been going all the way back to the 70s that we've been talking about this stuff. So um, what should we do about it? And the interesting angle here um, is you keep doing the things you're doing, obviously offer the sort of life you wanna offer on your campus. But uh, ironically, the virtual environments may actually provide an answer for us here. Uh, our students are more virtually engaged than any prior group of students. They were born digital natives. I think they're about, incoming students were about three years old when the iPhone came out. Sorry if that makes you feel old, but it makes me feel old. Uh, and, <laughs> but they've lived their whole lives that way. Uh, we know from our work in the admissions space, and this was something coming from our admissions teams, that they are using tools. We have one at EAB called Wiser that. Uh, engage students with each other in the prospective student process. So before they even come to campus, they're talking with each other and trying to get each other to matriculate at this school and build that kind of community. They also get to talk to current students. And it's a way to build a community before you even physically are in person with anybody. Um, and there, you know, we saw some schools experimenting and leaving this on uh, as students arrived on quote-unquote campus during the, the pandemic. Um, and there was some uptick there. Students were using those tools to find each other. Uh, So there's an opportunity here where we can use the virtual experience to foster in-person connections if the university creates that kind of, um, that avenue, that platform. And I'll add that there's another angle here which is interesting. If you curate the content in those communities, you you form communities around experiences that we know are hugely valuable for student engagement, like internships and activities, work with professors, that you can even further drive engagement uh, through these platforms by curating and pushing that content out to students. So that's our that's our first ripple, students sort of social disengagement that uh, we may have to do a little bit more work over the course of the next, who, who knows, few semesters to draw students back into the community that once existed before.
1: So, Ed, let's, let's dive into more of the ripple effects that you have here. Um, we have a couple, we have some time here left, and I definitely want to give enough time to all of them. So let's dive in and talk a little bit more about the student mental health and what we're seeing yeah. there.
0: So that's the second ripple, right? And it's, it's uh, you know, kind of a, a close cousin to the social engagement, um, but I don't think it's going to surprise anybody listening that we've had some mental health challenges over the last couple of years. It's been very st- stressful, and this is for everybody, I want to be clear, been very open talking about some of the struggles that I've had and the, you know, experiences that I've had trying to live through this <laughs> with everybody else and the stresses there, how much I've grown. And so from that experience, I'm very empathetic to this one. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a huge mental health challenge on campus. This was growing for years, Um, and you can look at numbers around the number of students with depressive episodes who qualify for anxiety disorders, the actual utilization of counseling centers. Over the last decade, these things have all been on the rise. So this was already a growing concern on campuses in an area where there was some investment occurring. Well, obviously, the pandemic uh, created a hugely new stressful environment, and something like seventy five percent of students said that the pandemic uh, increased their uh, uh, their or sorry decreased their mental health, worsened it uh, in some way, and actually eighteen percent have worsened significantly. So right there with the rest of us, they had huge challenges. Um, so this is an area where we need to be making some investments because it was already a growing area that is now on fire, if you will. Uh, in an area that schools are pretty overwhelmed. Uh, if you think about mental health being delivered through a counseling center, the appointments are full, the capacity is taken up. And so how, what more can we do to meet this demand is the big question that's on everybody's mind. And I want to frame this as a pandemic ripple because not like mental health just just happens automatically. You know, trauma can persist for a long time for a lot of us. Uh, the experiences that we went through, some people will get over quickly. Others, it will be some time. Um, And that uh, we also need to be thinking about the students that will be coming to us from the future, those who had these experiences, but they were in high school, even grade school. What will they be bringing with them when they come to campuses? So this is clearly a challenge that needs a lot of investment and that schools are struggling to keep up with an area where they should put a lot of focus on, not just for the pandemic, but for the future.
1: Yeah, and I think it was really interesting too. Um, I, I think you had talked about, or, or maybe you'll bring up here in a moment, talking about kind of some of the surveys that have been out there, where you normally rank this stuff in terms of what are the top priorities for presidents, and we've we've seen some change there.
0: Yeah, uh, it was surprising. I saw a survey from last February, February 21, that asked college presidents what their top concerns were. And Above enrollment, which is a huge concern for a lot of schools, about dealing with the pandemic, obviously a huge one. The top concern was student and staff mental health um, across it. So let's not forget about everybody else involved in the campus in the regards here. Uh, This podcast is focused on students, but we do want to acknowledge that, of course, that these concerns have been shared by everybody. Um, but yeah, it was the top of a list. And, um, I don't think you would have seen a survey that would have said that prior to the pandemic. So it's clearly a huge priority for a lot of schools, for senior leaders in a lot of schools.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the words that have been leading out, even as people have been talking about this has been the, has come into our vernacular has been languishing, talking about this kind of eroding and, and, and increase of this feeling of kind of uncertainty and, yeah. um, not knowing when or how things are going to change. And so, you know, and, you know, in terms of my focus with equity and, and some of the work mm-hmm. that's happening there, I definitely want to talk about and bring up talk about the special focus and emphasis that needs to happen to students for students of color. Because we talked about what wasn't happening prior to the pandemic. And for many of them, they couldn't necessarily find the care or the need that they needed on their campuses. So I just want to talk about what's going on there in terms of a, a priority.
0: Yeah, and um, you and I both know, uh, we've had many conversations about this, that it's kind of a, a twofold nature. There's a uh, part of it, which is stigmatization. I don't know that I want to be associated with uh, the idea that I'm seeking help. Um, and another huge part of it is comfort. Can you find someone to connect with who understands your background and experiences, that you feel comfortable opening up? You don't have to explain everything all over again. Uh, And, you know, so that's one of those experiences where if you look at the numbers and you see who's actually making use of mental health services on campus, it's overwhelmingly white students. Students of color are not using as much. Um, And, you know, this is obviously an area that we would like to get these numbers up, not just simply because it was already inequitable, but because of the disproportionate impact the pandemic's had upon a lot of communities of color uh, and how those students might be carrying a lot more trauma and weight from that experience.
1: Absolutely. Um, just knowing where we are with time, is there any other things you want to share in terms of insights or, or conversations you've had about this before we move on to the next topic? Yeah.
0: Our mental health team's done a lot of good work on this, and I encourage everybody to go check out their uh, the work on our website. Just start Googling "mental health" on eab.com, and you'll find a lot of it. Um, and they have four recommendations I was hoping to just sort of like rattle off really quickly for folks to get a sense of what that um, work might be. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Um, And the first one is this, Um, we should try, the general thing is we need to get mental health counseling beyond the counseling center. We need to be able to do more of this around campus. And how are we gonna do that? Well, it turns out you've got a lot of programs already out there that are meant to address aspects of mental health, stress reduction programs, various different healthy life programs, um, just support groups, you know, who can you connect with and talk to? Um, So there's capacity out there. It's a matter of connecting students to that capacity. And this is a matchmaking problem. We have to get Mm -hmm. students to uh, understand that there's stuff out there to help them and that they have stuff that's there specifically for their specific challenge Um, understanding well maybe i don't need full-on you know a huge you know once a week therapy session but i would like a little bit of help addressing these concerns well we've got that for you so if there's a way to do um, matchmaking particularly through online portals uh, we've seen some schools explore that this is how we connect students to the things that we're doing that's right so use the capacity we already have Two is you can add more capacity by adding touch points into the student experience that you may not expect. So, for instance, you can build mental health into course curricula. You know, you can ask professors to do that, um, especially if it's germane to the topic, have reflection moments. What we're trying to do there is normalize the conversation, get students to feel comfortable about talking about these things, decrease that stigma, and hopefully um, have some students who need help decide that they're going to step forward three is you got to do hiring in the we already talked about this a little bit you got to do hiring in your mental health center that uh has staff that reflects the diversity of your campus you got to be able to meet students needs uh, from a um, uh, demographic and personality and identity standpoint and uh, for that you're gonna have to offer a lot of uh, essentially essentially diverse people within your counseling center so the students have those folks that connect you and four and this one's um you know less obvious but we don't always do a great job understanding the impact of what we're doing on student success and uh, mental health is one of those things that might often get assessed on utilization or student satisfaction but i wonder how many schools out there are also trying to link the impact of those services to retention rates or graduation rates or academic success if you had those kind of data you could then begin to do assessments that then argue for additional investment hey we know this really works this is the sort of program that keep students in school they get better grades. Let's put more dollars here. We know it works expand the program. And uh, the sense of our team is that most schools, most counseling centers don't have that kind of data available to them. Most student student health uh, groups don't have that kind of data available to them, but if they did, they could make even smarter arguments in the future for even more help.
1: Those are fantastic. And thank you for sharing those. And so let's, let's go into the third piece of what we're here uh, to think about. And I will, I will not, um, Listed off. I'll let you tell it to our listeners here. What we're going to talk about next?
0: Yeah. So there's a the transfer ecosystem is uh, maybe one that uh, surprised me a little bit when I saw this, but once I did, oh my gosh, it made sense. The um, and let me tell you a little bit what we're talking about here. So sure. within, um, uh, we, or sorry, across higher ed, the enrollment impact has been felt uh, very, very heterogeneously. Um, overall, we're down about eight percent from where we were in fall. 19 um, in terms of enrollment. So the two-year declines have been about 8%. That's been about 3% at private nonprofit four years, 4% at public four years, but a whopping 15% at two-year schools. So two-year schools are really, really struggling on enrollment uh, right now. And that is a big deal for two-year schools, but it's going to be a big deal for everybody uh, in a short order because almost every aspect of higher education is in some way, shape or form dependent upon two-year schools. Uh, either as a source of transfer students, or even if you're a more selective school, maybe your students are taking dual enrollment classes while they're still in high school, they were doing less of that during the pandemic. Uh, So this is a huge enrollment source that we count on to fill in our upper division classes uh, in the four year space that is not gonna be as large as it used to be. The recruitment pool is just gonna be smaller. And this is also critical for two year schools because a significant number of students will move not from two year to four year, but from two year to two year as well. So if you're a two-year school that absorbs a lot of students from two-year schools, this is also a potential challenge for you down the road. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we don't know how long this is gonna last. This will last as long as the enrollment contraction in the two-year space lasts. But it doesn't mean that there isn't work to be done here because frankly, this was another area that was pretty broken before the pandemic. Um, We are not very good at doing transfer articulation. Students lose a lot of credits between schools and we lose a lot of students between schools. The vast majority of students who started a two-year school have the intention of moving on and getting a bachelor's degree. But I think the number is something like 30% actually do. Um, And so something's going wrong there. And furthermore, we know that those numbers are inequitable. You're far more likely to make that leap and get that bachelor's degree if you're white or Asian than if you're black or Hispanic. And so this is a system that was already rife for for improvement, if you will, uh, before the pandemic. And I think this is actually one of those great opportunities where the system is going to get stressed and has to fix itself finally to deal with the stress, but ultimate beneficiaries are going to be students and the institutions themselves. But this is one of those cans, we can't keep kicking down the road, we've got to focus on this one. Um, And the good news is we've got a little bit of time to really get it right, but the attention needs to start now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like we don't want students to no longer be kind of left out in the ether or have to find their way back to our institutions after they may have lost their footing or are trying to figure out what's going to be their next step because they may have gone to an institution that's not working for them. And, you know, I want to bring in just a little bit of personal commentary because I was one of those students and I had a a number of stopouts. My first and second school did not work out for me. And I realized just how um, hard that process was Twenty some years ago, oops, I'm dating myself. Um, but I will say that um, that this is, like you said, is right for opportunity and to fix this transfer system and to think more broadly about how we support these students when we're thinking about this equity moment as well in terms of our first-generation students, um, our Black, Latino, Latinx, uh, Native, low-income, and others.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, so there's uh, really two big things that we need to be doing to fix this system. Uh, and. It- there's things that require partnership between institutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I already alluded to the first one is uh, do what you can audit your transfer articulation and see what you'd be doing about taking more credits from more of your partners. We are surprised again and again by the number of stories we hear. A lot of this, by the way, is coming from our moonshot for equity, a group that we're doing work with now in, in three cities. The one that's furthest along is Milwaukee. We've got four schools in Milwaukee that are building a transfer consortium, among many other things. with the. Um, uh the the purpose of trying to promote equity and they're discovering all kinds of stuff like they had just no idea that a course wasn't articulated between one school and another one because some decision was made a long time ago and everybody teaching those courses agrees they're actually the same course we should accept that so doing an audit there so you make sure you're taking as many credits as possible and then making that transparent to students as they are applying to your campus let's not make that process so laborious for students to figure out i mean if you think about it it should be almost instantaneous you should be able to know I have these credits, how many of them are gonna apply to school A, B or C because that affects my choice about where I wanna go. Schools that can do a better job increasing the number of articulations and the transparency around that, just do a better job attracting students and the system will be fairer for them. The second big thing is you can develop deliberate pathways. And again, this is some work we're doing in Milwaukee by which schools are setting up such that maybe you do the first two years at the local two-year school and then you finish out at the local four-year school Um, It's the same program, it's almost seamlessly a handoff. It doesn't feel like I'm moving between the situations. And it's the deliberate pathway that I knew I got into when I started at the two-year school. This was always my intention. These are becoming more and more popular across the country, but they do require a lot of work and schools to partner together. But when they happen, they are very valuable programs and provide pathways for students that uh, weren't as clearly defined as before. So, strongly encourage schools to do all of those things. build out your transfer articulations, build out the automation of the process and start working with your partners on dedicated programs that allow students to bridge the gaps um, without losing credits and with knowing exactly what they're doing and what their intentions are.
1: Yeah, and then the last thing I'll add there too, because I've been working with this Moonshot regions as well is that just to make sure that you, you understand that process as well. Because what we found in those regions is that there were usually 13 doors that students had to go through that weren't clear. And we also found out as well is that there were just needless hurdles that they weren't aware of and they weren't aware of where the transfer populations were coming from. And that's, that's another sure. reason of wanting to collect the data. We found one of those institutions, 2% of their enrollment was coming from, which is significant. Um, yeah. So you definitely want to make sure that you're doing that work.
0: Yeah, there's a lot to be discovered there. There's just so much schools don't know about yeah. transfer and what their role is in the larger ecosystem.
1: Absolutely. So let's go on to the final piece in terms of what we're talking about here in terms of um, uh, K-12. Yeah,
0: OK, so this is the biggest uh concern that i have it's also the furthest out but when we start sharing these data i just want to prepare everybody it gets a little bit grim uh folks uh so I just want to prepare you for that uh that we're talking about what's happening in the k-12 space and many of you have children and you know that their education was quite disrupted over the course of the la- of the pandemic uh, and you know what kind of impact is that going to have on college down the road um, but I also want to have the caveat here that this is far away. We may never experience these challenges. And if we do everything right, we will not experience these challenges. This is more of an awareness issue. But what's happening in K 12? Okay, so obviously they had their own move to the virtual environment. And, uh, you know, maybe looking at the college space and saying that's difficult with adults. Imagine doing that with seven year olds. And so, you know, the experience is it's difficult. What kind of impact did it have? Well, we looked at, uh, and this is where I was talking a lot with our our, um, K-12 team, they were pointing to two big things. One was what's happening in high school, absenteeism nearly doubled. Normally, we have about 3 million students that are chronically absent, I think it's defined as 10 or more days missing from school in a year. That doubled, Uh, estimates are uh, somewhere in that range, and we think that of those students, an additional 600,000 to over uh, 1 million of these students, this is uh, estimates from McKinsey, won't be coming back to school. So we'll have a smaller high school population. We were already expecting to have a smaller high school population at the end of the decade. That might be happening right now um, because of the pandemic. So there aren't as many students in high school, and we don't know how well prepared they're going to be for college. Will they have learned as much uh, across the course of the pandemic? Are they going to show up for the first day of classes like we are used to, or are they going to need additional help uh, getting up to speed on math and writing and those sorts of things that we do a lot of work in the first year. That's what's happening in high school. Let's go a little further back. Um, And one big insight from the K-12 team is, you know, educators have known for some time that the learning that you do early in elementary school is, um, you know, can set you on a pathway for learning for the rest of your life. And The big moment is the third grade. Third grade is when you stop learning to read and start reading to learn and the curriculum actually changes at third grade and more incumbency is put on the students, you have to be able to essentially read to teach themselves uh, as part of their assignments. Well, if you're not a strong reader at that point, you then (laughs) naturally begin to start falling behind. This has been a focal point that researchers have been focused on for years and there's all kinds of socioeconomic effects uh, tied up in here, so I want to acknowledge that as well. The Uh, But what the research says is essentially if you are not passed or you're not testing as reading confident in third grade, you're far less likely to go to college and rarely catch up. So, third grade is a big inflection point. Our current third graders are the high school class of 31. So, this is the beginning of the next decade that we're talking about here in terms of who's coming to college. If we actually impacted learning in K, or early K-12 as bad as we might have been. We could be feeling the after effects of that all the way through the next decade or all the way through to the next decade. We obviously hope this isn't gonna happen, but that is how long this could be. Now, what kind of impact do we have? Well, um, the looking at test scores, we know that from uh, K-8 that students are about four months behind or unfinished, if you will, uh, in re- in reading and about uh, five months unfinished learning in math. and These numbers uh, look worse when you look at communities of color, uh, or sorry, schools that serve communities of color and schools that serve lower income communities. Uh, Those numbers are are looking even worse. So it really did happen. We had an impact in K-8, especially. uh, We have the attendance issue in high school. And these things are coming our way to some degree, hopefully not a big one, um, but to some degree across the course of the next decade. It's going to be something we need to prepare for, but it's something we have time to prepare for. Um, uh, so, you know, this is something I'm trying to call a lot of attention to simply because, uh, you know, it's maybe not the thing that a lot of people are thinking about, but it is going to define so much of our work going forward.
1: Oh, absolutely. And then it's obviously sounds like our, our, our K-12 or school districts have the work cut out for them. So let's let's talk a little bit about what now can our college our university partners, what accommodations or adjust, adjustments do they need to make?
0: Yeah. So these are some big ones. Uh, and this is our work. We we do this all the time. Uh, where we're talking a lot about advising and student support and making investments there. The work we do around Navigate, our Student success Management System, and Starfish, our other Student success Management System, uh, that uh, are all about essentially increasing the ability to support students. We think there's going to be even more need for that. So make the investments. This is one of those um, uh, no regrets investments. If you invest in advising and student support and these problems don't happen, you won't regret it because your current students will benefit as well. You already needed to make this investment. Virtual advising, big deal here. We've already talked about it a lot. I won't go into more in length, but I think it opens up a lot of doors for providing this kind of support. And here's three. If you're a school that already enrolls a large number of developmental students, students who are not testing at college-ready levels in math and writing, you should probably start preparing for more of those. And if you are not a school that enrolls a large number of these students, you may may soon be. Uh, So you need to take a look at this. When we look at development education, of course, we do a lot of this work with the Moonshot as well, Macy. That's right. Um, we know that uh, the old model of enrolling students in no credit, non-college level preparatory courses with incredibly high fail rates is, is a broken model. It doesn't work. The newest research that's been over um, the last few years points clearly to the success of co-requisite models. How do these work? You enroll a student in the college level course. And then they're also required to take a supplemental course that essentially catches them up as they go. The great news here is they get the college credit and the pass rates are higher. So if you haven't moved to that co-requisite model where you're thinking a little bit about it, the time is now. Get that in place so that you are prepared for the future. And again, this is a no regrets thing. This was already a good move to make. Make it now. Even if the challenges that are maybe coming to us from the K-12 space happen or don't happen, we'll still be glad you did. So, you know, these are investments that are just good, good ideas.
1: Yeah, this is fantastic. Like, I honestly feel like we have to take a moment to breathe here and to take in all the information and great information that you shared with us. Um, These are some of the, like you said, same challenges, just more acute now. And we have always need to address these challenges. And and now we really have no choice or no reason not to do it um, in terms of all the information that you shared with us. I do want to mention that Ed does have a white paper coming out soon, and he's going to do a deep dive into more of these issues. So I want to make sure that you're on the lookout for that. And any last thoughts? Um, is there anything else that you want to share, Ed, before I kind of take us out?
0: Yeah, I, I, just a little bit of optimism here. Um, and I do encourage you to read the white paper, it's going yes. to be called the Pandemic Ripple Effect. Uh, it'll be up on eab.com uh, shortly. Uh, the, um, there's a lot of like scary data here. This is pretty heavy stuff. And I just want to leave with a little bit more of a positive, a little bit more of a optimism lift. The fact that we're talking about these issues now and not merely about what's happening right in front of our face, but a little bit further out. And the fact that we're looking at this stuff means that all the challenges that we're talking about here are not likely to happen in the, the worst case scenario. We're going to be aware of these things, and we're going to be working on them. The whole point of talking about this is so that they don't happen or that we can mitigate the impacts if they do happen. And there's some more good news, which is look back to all those innovations we've had during the pandemic. We haven't fully digested just all the cool new opportunities we have available to us. And the last thing I'll say here is that one of the big um, positive ripples from the pandemic has been the investment of public expenditure in higher education. We spent something like $77 billion from our funding on higher ed. That's somewhere between the GDP of Maine and Delaware. There's a lot of money. And this is opening up opportunities for schools to support students and make investments in itself that they never have before. It also suggests that maybe we're going to get this kind of support going forward when folks realize what sort of challenge we have recovering from our pandemic and our recovery we take a lot longer than other areas of society. So I'm just speculating here and maybe a hopeful speculation that that's a harbinger of additional partnership from governments and education going forward. And again, that's just a huge hope because we're all going to be in this together and this is a fundamental thing that we do in our society and it's such a foundational part of our economy. We are all invested in making sure that these issues never come to light. And in fact, that we emerge from the pandemic much stronger than we entered it as educators and as the educational system oh absolutely than, and we did that yeah. good <laughs>
1: and no and I was about to say um just to kind of carry us out that was that was great in terms of hope and optimism that we should have for what we can do together and these and these challenges which will actually uh pose as opportunities so i want to thank you again ed and for everyone listening um we'll be back soon with some more topics and until then everyone please be safe
0: Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week when our experts share advice on how to leverage the data you've already collected on your admits to focus your current outreach efforts on those who are most likely to be convinced to actually enroll. Until then, thank you for your time.